Hello, Undiscovered listeners. It's me, your host, Jake Warren. Now, with Undiscovered Series 1 being over, we think we've got something else that you'll really enjoy. Today, I'm introducing you to a new show that we've done at Message Heard called Benched. Now, Benched is a sports show that's actually not really about sports at all. It uses sport as a way of telling the most amazing, inspiring, or dark human interest stories from around the world. The first episode of Benched is something I think that undiscovered listeners will really enjoy. This episode in particular is about the Rwandan genocide and football. It's the story of Eric Morangwa, who was the Rwandan national team goalkeeper during the early 90s and whose life was actually saved during the genocide because he was a footballer. It's hosted by David Priest, a former goalkeeper himself from Sunderland. And together, him and Eric explore how the effects and power of football often reaches far beyond the pitch. Benched is available now wherever you get your podcast. And please remember, if you do like the episode, do leave us a comment, as actually that does really help us. Thank you. My teammates helped me to move to another person who was an influential person within my football club, but he was also an influential person within militia groups that was killing people at the time. Welcome to Benched, the podcast that brings you stories that are sidelined in the world of sport. Stories that are inspiring, harrowing, or often absurd. I'm David Priest. Some of you may know me as the former goalkeeper for Aberdeen, Sunderland, and Barnsley, and now sports journalist, broadcaster, and analyst. I'll be your host for this episode, and today we're going to talk about how football saved the life of one of Rwanda's top players, Eric Morangwa Eugene. And I don't mean this in the metaphorical sense, like football gave him courage and confidence to be great and all that. There was literally a man with a machete ready to kill Eric during the genocide in the mid-90s, and the fact he was recognised as a professional footballer is what saved him. For those of you unfamiliar with Rwanda, it's a beautiful mountainous country in East Africa, appropriately known as the land of the Thousand Hills. It's bordered by the Democratic Republic of Congo to the west, Uganda to the north, and Burundi to the south. Rwanda is made up of two main ethnic groups, Tutsis and Hutus. In 1994, violence erupted and a genocide took place. In just the last 24 hours, more than a quarter of a million people have fled Rwanda and its terror. Lines at some border crossings stretch for five miles. With the people have come more horrible stories about what is happening in the homeland they are fleeing. Most casualties are being inflicted by government troops and their allied militias as they systematically slaughter civilians in an apparent attempt to exterminate Rwanda's 700,000 minority population from the Tutsi tribe. More than one million Rwandans were killed in little over 100 days of slaughter, with the majority of the victims being Tutsi. Eric, being Tutsi, was caught up in the conflict. Eric, thanks for joining me today. Hello, Dave. Before we get into that story, I want to know a little bit more about your journey into professional football. At 42, we're the same age, we're both goalkeepers, and it's interesting to think how different our experience have been whilst we played at the same time, but different sides of the world. Tell me, first of all, how popular is football in Rwanda? Uh, well, football is the national game. It's loved by pretty much all Rwandans. Um, I played for a club called Rayon Sport, uh, which is the biggest football club in Rwanda. So growing up in Rwanda, did you always want to be a footballer? Is that the first thing that you want to be? Definitely, definitely. As, as, as much as I can remember from 
the age of five, six, I was already in love with football. We used to spend days, hours on the street, just around the corner of my parents' house, playing football, especially during the holidays. I would be there from eight in the morning till uh, six o'clock when the sun goes down. Um, around the age of, I think, 12, 13, I started going to training ground where the club that I, I supported as a kid was training from. Uh, it wasn't far from my, my parents' house. Which club was that? Uh, the Rayon Sport. Okay. So I used to go behind the goal when the team would be training to basically play the, the raw ball, raw, and Sometimes goalkeepers will be late for training or they would be not showing up at all. And the players would ask me just to stand and go and make up the numbers. Before I knew it, I was helping out the goalkeepers when going through their special training. And by the age of 15, I was part of the squad already and I played my first professional football game at the age of 16. Like I said before, we were the same age, we played the same position and it just struck me that my first hero, my first goalkeeping hero was actually African. It was Bruce Gobelar at Liverpool. Okay. He, he, he was the he was the first he was the first goalkeeper, you know, that I I really saw and thought, yes, definitely what I want to be like him. Back then was anybody who you kind of you know, who's your favourite goalkeeper or that you somebody you you idolise as a Yeah, yeah, well my idols at the time were keepers who were playing in those leagues that I was following most in, in France. Did you have any anybody in particular? Uh, quite a few, but the one that um, you know stood out was um, a former Cameroonian goalkeeper called Joseph Antoine Baer. Uh, I don't know if you know. You yeah, know yeah I do, yeah. Cameroon used to they produce some very good goalkeepers, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you're playing for Rion Sports yeah. and Tootsies and Hooters oh, yes. playing the same team. Oh, yes. Did that any, ever cause any problems? No, no. That was the beauty of sport and football in this particular case. So this division between the two sort of sides. Mm. Is this something that has always been in Rwanda? It, wa- it wasn't. It wasn't. Tutsis and Hutus have always been there in Rwanda. But Tutsis and Hutus, back in time, they were a uh, class. They were people based on what they did. So Tutsis uh, were Tutsis because they owned cows. Cow was the symbol of wealth in old Rwanda. So if you own more cows, then you will be seen as a Tutsi. Uh, Hutus were farmers, people who worked in land, and people used to move from one side to another. So if you acquire wealth, if you are Hutu, then you become a Tutsi. If you lose your wealth, if you are Tutsi, then you become a Hutu. That's how it used to be. But then when the colonizers came over, first Germans and then Belgian, they completely changed this around by basically making it ethnic thing. So telling us that you are actually different, not only in what you have physically, but you are different intelligently, you are different in in all sort of way. Tutsis and Hutus speak the same language. They share tradition and culture. There have never been a place in Rwanda where you would call this is a place Mm. of Tutsis, this is a place of Hutus. They've always lived in the same villages. 
there was no reason to think that these people are different. It's a classic tactic that it people use. It's to divide. To divide and rule. Yeah. That was the main reason why they did. And uh, yeah, so late 50s, uh, when, uh, when uh, most of African countries were calling for independence, so was Rwanda. And uh, they pretty much worked with uh, some uh, uh, small group of Hutu elites people to completely change the, the whole thing. And uh, they used the approach of uh, violence to change what was in Rwanda at the time. More, more than uh, 20,000 Tutsis were forced out of the country. 2,000 people were, were killed. And that was the start of what we ended up having in 1994. And they actually used the football clubs to create this rivalry and they, division. They did, indeed. Uh, in early 30s, the king was very much into sport. And then when he saw football, he fell in love with football. Then he basically turned football into national game by instructing all his chiefs across the country to basically create football teams. So the first football teams that were created in Rwanda had a direct political influence. Just talk us through what happened uh, personally to you in 1994. So we're basically, to give you a, a little bit of uh, background so that you can understand how things changed uh, from bad to us in the 90s. When the Tutsis who ruled the country back in the late 50s were forced out of the country, uh, they went and stayed away. They were completely refused to return to the country. For 30 years, they were refused to return to Rwanda. So where did most of those so, go? Yeah, mo- most of them went to Uganda. Others were in Congo, Burundi, Tanzania, Kenya, and somewhere as far as here in, in Europe and America. In 1990, the second generation of those who were forced out of the country uh, reorganized themselves and they formed a rebel group. When the peaceful negotiations failed to uh, return them to Rwanda, they chose to use force. So they created this rebel movement that was called Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, and they started war against Rwanda. That basically gave more reasons to the Hutu extremists to target Tutsis. Politicians were calling for the Hutus to hate Tutsis, you know, in a public domain. Uh, media was used. Uh, we had um, this uh, infamous radio head called RATRM that was created, I think, in 1993, uh, specifically to promote the hate against the Tutsis. Notice to all cockroaches listening now. Rwanda belongs to those who really defend it. And you, cockroaches, are not real Rwandans. If we exterminate all cockroaches, nobody will judge us. Uh, So, yeah. It was there, you could see that things were changing. Personally, between 1992 and well, up till the end of the genocide, I never returned to the north to play. Whenever my club went there, I stayed behind because I feared for my life. Mm. That part of the country was the, the place where Tutsis, they started killing them as early as 1990 in open way. 
you would hear that uh, in this village there have been attacks and uh, hundreds of Tutsis had been killed. Public transport buses will be stopped on the way and Tutsis will be taken out of the minibuses and they will be uh, hacked to death or shot dead. Uh, so did the, did the team still have to go and play games in the, in the north? Oh, or? yes. Yeah, yeah they, they, they went. They went. Uh, it had be, become a kind of normal thing. You know, people knew Tutsis were, were, were being singled out, were being killed, harassed. But it didn't stop life to go on. So in 1994, the president airplane was shot on the night of uh, April 6. As soon as I, we heard that, we froze. You knew something bad was going to follow such a thing. You know, we, we said before that football saved your life. Mm. So let's talk about that moment when football saved your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, by 1 p.m. next day, a group of soldiers attacked my house. There were about six of them. They came into a house, uh, forced their way in and shouting and put us on the floor, kicking us and threatening to to shoot us. Uh, and they were accusing us of being the reason why the president was killed. Uh, we were trying to say that we have nothing to do with that. We are just sportsmen. We, we don't do politics. So basically, they're just coming and making an excuse. Yeah, just to... so, but clearly, they were under instructions. How quickly they descended into people's house and going to some specific houses, it really showed they knew. Okay, so they're, before, they're not just going from one house to another. They're, they're, no, they're targeting they, they knew which houses that they were going to. Okay. Uh, then they were pretending they were coming to look for weapons that were in those houses. Uh, so they went around throwing things up and down, and clearly they had come there to kill us. Some of the things that they, they threw up, up in the air turned out to be my photo album and one of them landed on the floor wide open and it was full of my football club photos and it took the attention of one of the soldiers. He picked it up and looked at them and said, who are these people? And I, I quickly say, those, those are my teammates, those are my fans and, and who do you play for? I said, I play for Rayon Sport. And then he turned and looked at me and say. I think I'm going to kill you first because you you can't be telling lies, you know. How can you say you you play for your own sport? I say I do. And then he looked at the photos again, and then he looked at me. I said, "Oh, are you Toto?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Why didn't you say so?" I said, "Well, I've been saying that for the last ten, fifteen minutes." By I say. Get up, get up. So he sat me down and we started talking. The name Toto was a nickname that I had been given by my adoring football club. It means the young one in Swahili. So you got it from because you were so the name that, at yeah, when I, You know, when I joined the club as a 12, 13 years old. So I was, I was 
singled out as the youngest member of the team and was given this name Toto and he stuck and you know if, even though I was no longer Toto <laughs> but they always called me Toto yeah. uh yeah so he sat me down and he ordered his colleagues first and foremost to get out of the house and and wait for him to come out we talked for the next 10 minutes and he just wanted to talk about football prior to the start of genocide we had eliminated this club from sudan and it's still one of the most talked game in rwandan football history at the time was the biggest achievement any football club in rwanda had achieved because we had qualified for the last 16 of the african championship and the fact that it happened at the time where rwanda was in a very you know deep trouble situation it became a very important game Yeah, and it it was celebrated by everyone in the country. Everyone, and the guy wanted only to talk about that, Amazing. and uh, that became a reason why my life and the life of my housemate were spared at that moment. Before leaving, he actually gave us some instructions. So he told us to open wide or curtains, uh, leave the doors open. Is that, is that so it, it looks like the the, the soldiers have been something, there yes. gone, yeah. so so whoever may pass by will not come in again the soldiers have been there we can't move on and it, it worked it worked for us for the next few hours before the end of the day and uh, the next day we decided to leave the house and we went to my hutu teammates who lived about a mile away from where where we were living and it turned out to be probably the best decision I've ever made. It was the reason why I survived the genocide. I moved from one place to another throughout those 100 days. Um I was able to get some different help from different people. First my teammates who I stayed with for almost a month or so and then they helped me to move to another person who was an influential person for within my football club but he was also an influential person within uh, militia groups that was killing people at the time he then helped me to move from the neighborhood and went to the international red cross and then left there went to a place called hotel mirkorino which is very much known uh, because of uh, a famous film called uh, hotel rwanda so i stayed in that hotel for again a couple of weeks and then was moved from the hotel by UN peacekeepers who had remained in Rwanda at the time and they took us to the other side of the town which had been captured by the rebels the RPF that was my journey of survival basically uh then uh, after the end of war and, and the genocide i returned to capital city in my neighborhood life was nowhere near to be normal the whole city was destroyed um there was still thousands hundreds of thousands of corpses uh, all over all over the place so it it was uh it was it was a city of of no no life no hope and you you lost uh, mem- close members of your your family Uh, yes 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 I, lo- i lost i lost uh, quite a number of uh, uh, family members including a younger brother of mine who was only seven years at the time 
uh, uncles, aunties, uh, nieces, cousins, so many friends that I grew up with, I played football with. Um, yeah, quite quite so many people I lost. And, and, and now, you know, after after going through all of that, how is the country now? There must have been a, a lot of forgiveness. Uh, despite all that we, we had just suffered, there was a need to uh, encourage forgiveness. Uh, obviously, it's a long process. It's something that will take generations to genuinely uh, have a proper reconciliation where people no longer think about what happened in a very painful way. But we are, we are on our way. And um, I personally have uh, been part of that and I've used uh, my experience as a, as, as, a, as a former football player, as a genocide survivor to uh, try and use the power of sport, in particular football, to contribute to that process of, of reconciliation and reconstruction. Uh, being able to work with the young Rwandans by showing them how coming together, working as a team is the most important thing, is, is something that can give you hope, can create a future. Without having had the support of my teammate, I would not have survived the genocide. Without having met them through football, and build that bonds, you know, through playing football, training every day, they would not have had a need and an interest mm. to stand by me. So this is this is the message. This is the this is the the values I try to instill in, in young people I work with through my my initiatives. I want young people to understand that football is not just something for fun and leisure as many associate that with. It's actually something that can teach you how to be a decent human, as my teammates were. It's something that can make you a hero, as my teammates were, when they defied the norm at the time, stood by me and helped me to survive the genocide. What was your foundation called? Football for Hope, Peace and Unit. Well, Eric, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with us today. It uh, certainly is an inspirational one. And um, I wish you all the best in the future with your project. Thank you. This episode of Bench was produced by Jake Warren, Sandra Ferrari and Nikki Peach. Music by Matt Huxley. If you want to hear more episodes of Benched, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Earcast, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's all from me, David Priest. Thanks for listening.